As a filmmaker and photographer, great apes have changed my life and taken me on journeys and adventures I never would have dreamed possible. On this episode of Talking Apes, I'll be chatting with a kindred spirit of sorts. Because for everyone who becomes deeply passionate about saving great apes, that journey begins in a very personal way. All of us dream about going to Africa and seeing apes. Some of us make the trip and trek with chimpanzees or climb into the misty forest home of mountain gorillas. But it's a rare and unique individual who afterwards says, you know, I'm gonna profoundly change my life around and start saving apes. In fact, I'll join the Jane Goodall Institute Board of Directors and I'll even create my own nonprofit for young local wildlife vets to help them save great apes. Today on Talking Apes, we meet the everyday man who a decade ago went on a not-so-everyday adventure, one that has changed his life and many others forever. My guest is Dr. Rick Quinn, a veterinarian ophthalmologist. Yes, an animal eye doctor. There is such a thing. He has a wonderful eye for grade eight photography and a dedication to sharing that vision with the world. Rick is also the founding director of Docs for Grade Apes, a Canadian-based charity promoting the One Health concept of linking animals, humans, and the environment. By connecting ideas and resources to deliver wildlife medical education, in turn, empowering the next generation of African wildlife veterinarians. Hi, I'm Jerry Ellis, and this is Talking Apes where we explore the world of apes and primates with experts, conservationists, and passionate primate lovers from around the world. Talking Apes is the podcast that gets to the very heart of what's happening with and to apes like us. Talking Apes podcast is made possible by generous support from listeners like you to nonprofit Globio at globio.org. Rick Quinn, welcome to Talking Apes. It's really great to have you. It's very nice to be here, Jerry. Thanks for the invite. We've had a lot of veterinarians um, on a podcast or researchers and scientists who also are veterinarians, and but they're, they're primatologists primarily. You're not a primatologist and you're not an everyday veterinarian. So to just get us started, can you walk us through your nine to five job, which is, I know it's not nine to five, but can you walk us through that? Because what you do as a vet is really interesting. Sure. I'd be happy to. And you're right. It's a little longer than nine to five, but it's enjoyable and I've done it for a long time. So I'm a veterinary ophthalmologist, basically looking after eye problems in my animal patients, uh, which range from dogs and cats uh, in the past, horses, some wildlife, basically looking after surgical and medical problems that have to do with vision, eyelids, eyes, that sort of thing. Hmm. I I mean, I guess as an average person thinking about a a vet down the street from me, I, I just, I never would have thought about eye problems. I mean, you think about spade and neuter, you think about, you know, urinary tract infections or, you know, some kind of, you know, issues. Sure. Sure. And we've, uh, as a profession, things have evolved over the last two or three decades. And, and now there are pretty much the equivalents of all the specialties that you'd be used to attending uh, yourself. So there are radiologists, there are anesthetists, there are oncologists, there are surgeons, and yes, there are ophthalmologists. So all kinds of specialties that uh, keep us uh, learning and at the forefront. Hmm. And you, you're you also a professor, is that right? I have a teaching appointment uh, in the Department of Ophthalmology at a local medical school. It's largely ceremonial. I think I accept a lot more from them than I give back, but it's nice uh, to have a community of other ophthalmologists uh, to to resort to. Well, that kind of, I, I guess, leads us into why you're on today and, and how we sort of came to know you. Um, you've got a new book out called Just Like Us, and we're going to, we'll talk about that in, in a little bit. But that book is filled with spectacular images of great apes. And so how does a, a veterinarian ophthalmologist go from looking after the eyeballs of horses, cats, and dogs to getting involved with great apes? I, I mean, that's, we, we spoke earlier and it's an amazing journey. And, and I, 
you said you didn't know the difference between a monkey and a gorilla. And you've gone from being one of just 8 billion, you know, bipedal great apes on this planet to one who's involved in, you set up your own nonprofit, um, which we'll talk about. You are on the board of the Canadian Jane Goodall Institute. You're on the Global Institute. Um, so how, how does one go from just being a, a normal everyday person to being so involved in great apes? Well, it has been quite a journey. The first trip to Africa actually was the result of having seen a couple of magazine clippings, which came across my desk and they featured uh, gorillas, uh, veterinary medicine, Africa, all kind of seemed intriguing. So pretty much on a whim, I called a friend and said, hey, David, he's an ophthalmologist in Michigan. And, and I convinced him that we probably could develop a series of lectures, end up in Africa, working with these folks that look after these mountain gorillas in Uganda, DRC, and uh, Rwanda. And, and perhaps we'd end up being able to get our picture taken examining a gorilla or something equally frivolous. And so he agreed. And the next thing you know, we found ourselves in front of a whole group of active veterinarians, retired veterinarians, technicians, wildlife people that had nothing to do with veterinary medicine. Everybody in the community came. It was just quite overwhelming. And I will say that as part of the preparation, we did have to bone up. I'm sure at some point I knew the difference between a monkey and a gorilla or a great ape, but, uh, but the whole tail thing kind of uh, left the memory banks as have many other uh, features uh, or bits of information. So we ended up there and before long, not only mesmerized by the gorillas that we saw pretty much as tourists, but also overwhelmed by the reception we had. And in the end, realizing that in fact, great apes, most of them don't end up with many eye problems. That was a tough pill to swallow for two veterinary ophthalmologists. And so we decided that, you know, I think we could probably do a lot more for the whole situation other than teach about eye problems, which, which we did. And they were grateful and we brought some equipment that they could use. And we taught veterinaries in uh, Kampala, Uganda as well. So, so that's kind of how it started. And before long, ended up uh, back, a little part of me, I think, stayed uh, in Africa. But the part that came back soon found himself sitting in an auditorium in Toronto, listening to Jane Goodall. And for those that have heard her speak, um, you know what happened. Um, she, in a matter of a two-hour lecture, moved me off the sidelines and kind of right into midstream, helping somehow with great apes. So I knew I was in trouble. Uh, on the drive home from Toronto and didn't sleep a wink that night and before long set out to start this not-for-profit not uh, Docs for Great Apes. So, so that came about and the, uh, the rest is history. Well, actually, no, the rest is not just history. <laughs> there's, there's a lot more history there and we'll, we'll dig into that. I, I just want to, um, since you're, you're coming at this at, as a, not just a doctor, but as a wonderful photographer. Um, and that's, again, like I said earlier, that's how we came to know about you is through this uh, wonderful book that you have, um, just like us, and all these images. And I, so I wanted to ask you is, you started on this journey, you, you've been around the world, you've been living in hot, humid forests, dumped on by rainstorm. I mean, you know, I've been out there enough to know that some of the things that you probably had gone through, but is, is there one, is there one story from all of that that sort of said, okay, this is why I'm doing this. This is, you know, I, I may have gone to Rwanda to get my picture taken with a gorilla and, and come back and tell a few stories, but I'm out here sledging through the mud in the swamps and this is why I'm doing it. Is there... Yeah, Jerry, that's a, that, that's, you're right about that. And, and I did very much uh, at the beginning come at this as a, as a curious veterinarian, obviously not the species that I was used to dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis, but curious in terms of the medical aspect of things, um, 
enthused by what my colleagues in Africa were able to do with so little and how enthusiastic they were. And I suppose in one way, the photography was kind of the glue that held it all together. And so one particular outing to see the mountain gorillas led to inquiring about, gee, bonobos, how might I get to see them? And that probably was the trip to answer your question that did make me realize that that we were onto something special. And I went on that trip with uh, a, a colleague who uh, has, uh, he was at the time, the director of the Gorilla Doctors and a fellow Canadian who was the head veterinarian at the uh, Maryland Zoo in Baltimore. And Mike and I went to Lamaco to uh, very much in the center of the Democratic Republic of the Congo, where a group of bonobos was known to exist. And, and they're, that's the only country, as you know, that they live in. And there are only a few areas that are accessible and not the easiest country to travel in. So because of the remoteness, this was in the, the north in Equator province. So basically, we took a long flight to Kinshasa. I was to meet him there. We ended up crossing paths. It did not work out initially. I took a huge long taxi ride in a very scary city of Kinshasa. Ended up not even sure if I would ever see my friend again. Uh, we managed to join up. We took a small chartered aircraft a few hours to a little remote village called Basinkusu, and from there got on and carried out a 14-hour wooden dugout canoe ride in a in what looked like a 40-foot-long pencil. And I know I was terrified when I sat in that for the first time, <laughs> thinking I cannot possibly go for 14 hours uh, it, it, along the Congo River and then tributaries. And it seemed like when we started, every villager that knew we could give them a free ride to somewhere was in the boat with us. In the end, it was wonderful. We traveled for the whole day. We we in the dark, we went through a thunder and lightning storm like I'd never been through, still going in the boat, periodically having to stop and change the spark plugs and float backwards while we were doing that. And then a 15 mile hike into uh, the reserve to sleep in a tent for eight nights and follow these bonobos. So that's when I realized that, all right, no electricity, no communications, uh, just us, uh, the research teams, which were very kind, the, the trackers, which made sure we could see anything that we were interested in. It was, it was quite an experience and it was basically trying to find the most elusive great apes and in the, in the least equipped manner. And uh, it, it, it made me realize that, wow, this is pretty special. This, not everybody gets to do this. In fact, I suppose there's probably medication for wanting to have to do it in the first place. But having said that, um, <laughs> it, it, you know, nobody that I knew wanted to go. And I thought, well, okay, we're on this journey. And it, it was, it was very special. We ended up seeing things that uh, even the researchers that were there were not that familiar with seeing. And, and uh, it, it was a wonderful trip, but it really cemented that, okay, a lot of people have done a lot of behind the scenes work to get me to where I needed to go. And at some point I need to pay this back. Hmm. Well, yeah, and, and just knowing bonobos like I do and the locations where they are, which are rare, um, that you're one of a tiny, tiny handful Correct. of non-Congolese who have ever seen And it was even the journey the wild, along the so, way. Just, yeah. just as we would, once I got my heart rate down and realized I wasn't going to fall overboard and drown, I watched as we would pass little fishing villages high up on the banks and so far apart and no road systems, you know, no music blaring, no computer, no laptop. It was just absolutely amazing. And, and we would see people who were in were on rafts uh, bringing their produce to markets and and moms bringing their kids to the school in little tiny pirogues or canoes it 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 just felt like 
I was living in the middle of a National Geographic magazine. Yeah, those are really rare moments that, that make make life, I mean, I know for you, they've made it very special and, and as for, for me as well to have those experiences. And just, again, feeling like, as you said, there's there's this, right? how can I pay this back? How can I return this value to the world? And 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 that's what you did um, that was so different than I think what a lot of people do. You just didn't go end up as a tourist and go and see, you know, starting with gorillas and then bonobos and now um, the other apes as well. But you took that one step further, and you not only created this nonprofit, um, Docs for Great Apes, but you also have moved it an initiative forward, which I want to talk about, which sure. is Conservets. So you started this program called Wildlife Conservet Education Project. Well, so when, we, what that when is. the dust settled and as the book took shape, it, it became obvious that what I really was attracted to was the whole sort of teaching value of it and not just teaching veterinarians, but, but teaching my relatives, my neighbors, the people who bring their cats and dogs to me, I would notice that they would be absolutely enthralled by looking at images, by hearing stories and, and wanted to bring that forward in the book. And, and so as I worked on the book, I thought that, well, this could actually be the centerpiece in a program where we could formalize some training. And given that's what started things off, and as I would go from one species to another thinking, well, you know, I can't just leave it at these two. I need to see orangutans. And then I thought, well, gee, you know, not only are they in Borneo, but they're in Sumatra. So that was another trip. And then as I would think, okay, well, I haven't seen Western lowland gorillas. So another trip, all those times, the people who helped me made it quite clear that they weren't quite sure what on earth a veterinary ophthalmologist was doing interested in all this, but they were darn sure that if I were going, I would want to help their veterinarians. And so we would have sessions where I would, you know, speak to them about cases. And, and yes, I saw a few orangutans along the way and a chimpanzee or two to like as a medical issue or for medical advice, but mostly I would listen to the veterinarians who would say, gee, you know, I wish I could do this and I wish I knew how to do that. And it became really clear that that one way that I could help would be to have a program that provided some stability to funding, because that's the biggest issue about getting this education to the people who deserve it and need it and who are doing important things that it's the it's the dollars it's the it's the cost for them to travel elsewhere or to have a, a conference uh, in you know closer to them so it became a question of how could i make a, a an improvement in access for them and for improving the quality of what it is that they could see. So through our charity, we decided that it would be, uh, we would call it a, the Wildlife Conservet Education Project because that's basically what it's doing. It's training veterinarians. So they're already veterinarians. They're young, enthusiastic, bright. They just have this barrier of the cost. And so we end up with having sponsored uh, scholarships so that we can look after the financial portion of it. And as well, we hope that morphs into more and more NGOs, wildlife NGOs, realizing that, hey, there's this kind of central clearinghouse through which we can put our name on a list, we can contribute, we can look for training for this veterinarian or that registered technician so that the, um, the, the offerings, the courses, the organization of that and the quality of that can go up as well. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a central clearinghouse for people to apply to, as well as a mechanism to provide consistent funding so that they don't have to 
um, you know, wait for a long time to get their veterinarians trained. And, it, and those are the veterinarians that will end up working in the national parks that you know African countries create uh, and many sanctuaries. And, and one of the things is I would go through these different countries, uh, guests of different NGOs like Wildlife Conservation Society or African Wildlife Foundation or the Jane Goodall Institute, Gorilla Doctors, they, they all have uh, veterinarians that work tirelessly and they all could use more, but it's the cost that's the barrier. So we thought if we could address that as an organization, that would play a big role. Um, that's so these correct. are all local vets we're that's, talking about. These that's are correct. Local, and, and that's, I guess, key vets. to the whole thing. As we dug into it more deeply, we realized that parachuting veterinarians or specialists, or, or for that matter, MD specialists into an area, it certainly helps with the immediate caseload, but it doesn't leave anything that's sustainable. And so we very much are of the philosophy that, that we need to train local people uh, to develop programs in local institutions. And so our Docs for Great Apes charity has in the past helped with sponsoring three veterinarians, one from each of Uganda, um, Democratic Republic of the Congo and Rwanda to complete their master's degree at McCrary University in uh, Uganda. So this is an extension of that. And we actually started two interns last week, last Monday. So two young Congolese veterinarians, a male and a female are now in just finished, I guess, their second week. And, uh, and, and they're totally enthusiastic and the idea is, is they'll learn the skills. They're already veterinarians, but they'll learn the skills on how to treat wildlife, not just primates, but wildlife. And they'll be part of a network that they can communicate with each other and, and keep learning for good. Congratulations. That's fantastic. Um, th that was actually one, one of the questions I had was the network side of this. I mean, one of the things that I've bumped into as I've worked in sanctuaries and conservation projects and others uh, with great apes, but with all the, also other things, you know, elephants and other species, is that there not only seems to be a gap in the training that's available, um, especially to work with wildlife in, in those countries, because most people who do become vets, they tend to go where there's the need, um, either it's a governmental need or a private need, and that seems to be around livestock and, and, and perhaps pets. Um, so you don't see a lot of training available for wildlife. And how do you think we get past that gap? Is it, is it going to require visiting wildlife vets from, you know, Western countries coming in and, and literally teaching in universities? Or is there, is there some way that what you're setting up can address that need as well? For sure. It's always seemed ironic to me that in a continent like Africa, and I'm sure it's similar in Indonesia, uh, I'm, it's always surprised me that when they have giraffes and rhinos and elephants in their backyard, that it isn't a big component of what they would learn in veterinary school. Having said that, and understanding it now on the ground is it, it they would train veterinarians for economic reasons to deal with livestock for you know, for nutrition reasons and, and so on. So, so that's, uh, you know, and, and the pet industry is certainly not as developed. And so wildlife is sort of down there on the list. And, and I guess the, um, what's good is that people that have um, been involved with this for a lot longer than myself, including the Gorilla Doctors Organization and the Jane Goodall Institute and so on, they have, um, they have invested in developing personnel in some of the key, uh, especially East African universities, so that there are now nascent departments of wildlife um, medicine. And it's a question of now developing those. And it's a question of having faculty from European or North American or Australian universities, veterinary schools going over for sabbaticals, so they're there for extended period of time and training people that are locally. So that's not something we can influence, but yet certainly appreciate. But 
what we can do and what we are doing in the next phase is we'll be not only sponsoring uh, graduate veterinarians to do one year long internships or three year long masters or PhD programs, but even at the undergraduate level in veterinary school, we are going to sponsor veterinary students to be able to do an externship for a month or two um, so that those students can do a project, they can understand, they can work with, with people that are doing wildlife, they understand the need, they understand the job opportunities, and hopefully it creates a pipeline of people who then, after they finish their veterinary degree, will have that as a career option. So basically, starting even before their graduate veterinarians. And that's not something that we developed ourselves. That's been going on. We're trying to make sure that the funding for it remains stable. So that's that's basically how we think to fill that pipeline. Uh, it makes the most sense. Hmm. So you've mentioned funding on a few occasions. What, what kind of funding are we talking about to get somebody you know, to, to provide the kind of training that, that is necessary for them to be, uh, you know, a functioning wildlife vet in a conservation project, in a, you know, sanctuary model. Sure. So we, we would, um, we just uh, work to have the two intern uh, positions made available. And for a year long, it would be in the 13 to 15,000 US range to train one person for that year. If they're in a master's program and by definition longer, it would probably be somewhere in the 30 something thousand, 30, 35,000 US range. So, and, and appreciate that it's, it is because of the nature of where these folks are and, and the resources that they do or probably do not have, it's not just a question of paying tuition. We end up purchasing a laptop so that they can stay connected so that while they're training, they can download literature, they can follow things on the internet. And more importantly, likely, even when they're finished, they can remain connected to develop this network. So there's that, there's living expenses. They just can't afford to suddenly drop out of a, an income producing job, take this training, uh, no matter how good the outcome would be for the national parks and sanctuaries, it's just cost prohibitive. So that's why it ends up being expensive. Yeah, but but it's well it's well in the range of uh, people donating to be able to support it, or or even sponsoring one of these young interns. Isn't Absolutely. It? Absolutely, and that's I suppose what I think is probably going to be our biggest contribution. It's. I run across people every day that are veterinarians, that are physicians, that are uh, educators, that are people who are retired from many walks of life. And they, when they hear the story, they want to help. They just don't know how. In fact, many veterinarians that I run into say, well, gee, you know, maybe I'll get on a plane. Just tell me where to go. I can treat some animals for them. But that's not really how we would help. It's about sponsoring them to learn in their own backyard. And um, and so it's basically creating the link. It's kind of matching the resources with the need. So first you have to recognize the need, know who is reliable, what programs are worth working with, and ultimately you improve those programs, but, but they have started. And now it's a question of saying, look, good stuff's being done on the ground. If you really want to help, here's how you support it. And it works out really well. And for example, I have Jane Goodall's sanctuary just outside Point Noir in the uh, Congo Republic. I met uh, an amazing veterinarian, Rebecca Atencia, who actually has trained many, many people and including support staff. And, and they have an incredible program where they not only take them in, but they rehome them on islands. It's incredible what they do, physical exams, treating those that have been abused. And no question, they could use more veterinary care, uh, more help uh, in training. And so she's involved in the program that we now have running at the Luwiro Sanctuary, a couple of countries over in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. So 
it's already happening where different groups are banding together and we're trying to support them in what's already on the ground and working so that they don't have to rely from one grant to another and it doesn't have to stop just because that grant cycle has finished. Yeah, I I mean that was one of the the key things that I noticed in in working with vets um across especially in Africa was that was there didn't seem to be a strong enough network for them to uh rely upon, for them to turn to when they needed support and help because many as you probably saw in many of these especially the sanctuaries there's a single vet um and they often don't even have uh, intern help and so it all falls on their shoulders to complete and many times they run into situations that they're not familiar with but they don't really have a very strong network amongst other sanctuaries and so that seems to be if if I could look at one thing, and I'd, I'd love to have your thoughts on it, but if if I could look at one thing that could really change that landscape, it would be for somebody to step in and really develop a, a strong network system, whether it's a, a listserv system or or something basic that, that these guys could share components of what they're going through, um, because they do run into so many similar things, and then take that and then, for example, share it with the folks in in Indonesia and Malaysia who are dealing with orangutans because they don't even talk to one another. I mean, gorilla people and orangutan people don't necessarily talk to one another. So I agree, Jerry, and I think you're starting. We're starting to see that change. And, and as an example, I know that there was uh, uh, this past year the Jane Goodall Institute was notified of a particularly egregious situation with captive chimpanzees and neglect. And, and they ended up uh, sending uh, out a call to say, is there anybody that you know can help? And the, 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 the veterinarian uh, Luis at the, um, at the Luiro Sanctuary just outside Bukavu in DRC ended up flying um, uh, and and looking after these poor chimpanzees. So, uh, you know, it, but I can recall at the time the call went out, it was probably a week to 10 days and everybody was saying, well, do you know somebody that could go? And and so his uh, his name, Luis Flores, popped up and, and he was more than willing to. So no, I couldn't agree more. But I do think that you're starting to see people come together, not just because of what we're doing. I hope that we can increase that uh, so that there truly is a network. We're basically forming a consortium of people that will be run out of the Jane Goodall Institute of Canada that that will run this ConserVet program for us. And hopefully as a spin-off, this communication is kind of best practices network, that whole kind of concept of like having a listserv, for example, hopefully that will grow out of that. It, yeah, it just seems like, and and even though technologies um, in some of these remote sanctuaries and conservation projects um, is a challenge, it just seems with the technology that we now have in the world, being able to share x-rays, being able to share images, you know, photomicrograph images, being to, to really talk to one another and be able to share, we're having this problem here, are you running into anything like that over there? And as For we sure. know... Especially in this past year, zoonotic diseases. We've all, I think, for sure gotten a and strong I do taste that's starting to happen because um, probably a year ago, somebody from a sanctuary in Gabon had uh, heard of um, my interest in ophthalmology and and great apes, and it was interesting. Within a twenty-four hour period, the person had. I was able to relay images taken with his or her iPhone that of the chimpanzee's eye that happened to have a cataract sent the images to me. I in turn contacted a, an MD ophthalmologist that I know uh, here in the city that I live at the medical school. And later that afternoon, he gave the 
info back to me what he would do if it were a person because the primate being a primate probably a little closer than what a dog or a cat or a horse would have happened and so within 24 hours that particular veterinarian in Gabon had a whole series of uh, emails that um, that was and he was able to help so I, I do think that's happening it's just knowing where the resources are who knows who and that's guess what you're saying is is invaluable Yeah, that I mean that that's the big one of the biggest things that I I saw a need for and I heard from vets um, that I spoke to was just this this ability to communicate with one another and share issues that were going on and especially um, in in the case of a lot of these locations in in equatorial right. Africa and Indonesia they are very right. young a lot of these vets. You know, it, it it takes a certain stamina to live in some of these places and 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 deal with it. And so they don't come in with enormous amounts of experience. And so when they do, but they're but they're more than willing, as I'm sure absolutely. You've seen, they're more it than willing to learn. It is one of the interesting things to too that I think we just, can contribute as our organization to? grows as kind of being a neutral um, a neutral party and and. Although all the wildlife NGOs means well, obviously have great programs in their own countries they work with, sometimes just by definition, they end up a little bit siloed. And, and so the communication isn't quite what it should be. And then all of a sudden, they are uh, co-recipients of a large grant. And the next thing you know, you have two of these NGOs working together and holy smokes, all of a sudden they have a program that pops up that is training people. And you just realize that the reason that didn't happen sooner was because they actually were so busy with what they were doing in their own uh, backyard that, that they couldn't see the bigger picture. And I don't mean that to be critical at all, but as somebody that has no stake in it, that comes from the outside, um, it is interesting that you can get that view from 30,000 feet and say, hey, you know, I just heard the same story when the people from, you know, the uh, WWF uh, hosted me uh, in Central African Republic as what I heard when the, um, you know, the African Wildlife Foundation hosted me in DRC in Lamaco. And so maybe there's somebody that needs to put one and one together and, and end up with the two. So I, I like to think that that's something that will happen over time. It, it takes a long time though. You have to build confidence in these folks and you, they have to, you have to be seen as a credible person. And, and, and that's, we've got lots of time. We're working on it. And I have a good solid board behind me as well that are very happy to help. That's interesting. You should mention that because I was going to ask what, what are the things you need to help to make this work? Well, it's it's basically uh, if you don't understand the problem, then you have very little chance of, in your own mind, finding a way to help or even realizing there's a need. So the first thing that we really do need to do, uh, and I know your organization's great at it as well, is is by definition is is get the word out there and and once people understand. Number one, that there's a need. Number two, that that there are good things being done on the ground. There usually there's that inherent human goodwill nature that comes out, and and people want to do something positive, especially in these negative times when they have an outlet that they can, you know, divert some of the worry, divert some of the energy, and end up um, helping. I, I think that's key. So that so the 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 short answer to your question is is education, is getting the word out there, having people, regular people, like grassroots folks, understanding that yes, there's a need and yes, there's some hope. There are things that can be done. And whether they read a book, whether they watch a podcast, whether they make a point of verbalizing or vocalizing these things when they're playing bridge on a Saturday night or out at the pub or wherever. Um, well, maybe that's unrealistic out at the pub, but uh, <laughs> it, uh, in most other places they can, they can talk about orangutans and, and, um, 
and palm oil, and they can talk about uh, bushmeat hunting and and um, and spread the word. That's that's how these things end up being resolved. Well, speaking of orangutans and palm oil, I wanted to ask you your experience in in uh, Borneo and in Indonesia and that area. I mean, we've talked a lot about the the African component. Did you? Were things different? Because you, you went to orangutans as sort of at the end of the African experience. Is that right? Well, kind of in the middle. I had seen I had seen the uh I, I'd seen the gorillas very first and been back several times uh, to do that. And and then it expanded to bonobos. And then I thought, well, gee, you know, and I'd seen chimpanzees in between there at Jane. Uh, good old sanctuary in Chimpunga and uh, in um, in the uh, in Uganda in the Kivali forest, and I thought, well, you know, if I'm going to be a credible, if I'm going to run a credible organization with our board, I should know something about orangutans, and we have an Indonesian friend, and uh, and so I thought, gee, you know, and it was one of my wife's specific birthdays. I would be shot if I said which one it was. Um, and uh, and so we organized a surprise trip uh, with this uh, Indonesian friend. And lo and behold, we were in Borneo seeing orangutans. And then of course, knowing that they were in Sumatra, I went back a separate time. And I will say that the Sumatra um, trip was probably what really crystallized the whole book thing, uh, having a uh, having a, 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 a there for three weeks and starting uh, in a in a national park in a in a semi tourist kind of a setting and then going on to the um, um, Sumatran orangutan conservation program with their uh, director Ian having a wonderful time seeing their. Uh, uh, seeing their quarantine center, going to their research stations, and then in the far northern tip in Aceh, where the horrible tsunami was, seeing a spot where um, they relocate these orangutans after three years of being at the quarantine center, they're relocated and walking around actually seeing orangutans and little orangutans who um, whose parents were in captivity and they have zero interest in coming down the tree and seeing people. So that's really when I saw all the pieces of the puzzle together. They run an amazing organization and they were very kind to me. Had I'd had like unbelievable access uh, and, and saw, got to spend time with their veterinarians at the quarantine center. That's where I examined the orangutan. And I kind of thought, and I say in the book that, it seemed like even though I was so far from home and everything else was different, the the fact that I was in an animal clinic talking to other veterinarians, I felt strangely at home. And um, and I just kind of pretended that this this orange creature in front of me was a, just an odd Irish setter, same kind of coloring, <laughs> um, equally friendly, and uh, just was totally mesmerized by their veterinarians. So yeah, that was probably the first place that I really realized that this is not just a random trip or two, that, that this is kind of a series. And then I ended up uh, thinking, well, I'd best go to see the Western lowland gorillas, so went back to Africa. So, mm-hmm. Well, I, I have to admit, you're the first person who's compared an orangutan to an Irish setter, and <laughs> especially a couple of the orangutan people that we've spoken to on on Talking Apes, they uh, the way they describe orangutans and their patience and their their willingness to sort of outthink you and take you apart. Um, <laughs> that's <laughs> a little different than an Irish setter, but but that's for fan- sure. That's fantastic. Was was speaking of of going there and, and seeing them and, and I know you got great images T- talk let's talk a little bit about the book um, again the the title is just like us and it's principally a photographic book um, it's it's about your journey and about your experiences right right so probably 50 percent of the volume of it would be images all taken in their natural settings of all the great apes and and the other 50% is the story. And, and that's part of the reason why I wanted this book to come out. One is that many of us 
tune out when we hear statistic after after statistic. And and as I mentioned before, I found when people saw an image or heard a story, they were glued, they were interested, they genuinely wanted to know more. So my thought was that there's a story to tell. And as I would get these opportunities and spend hours, and you know what it's like trudging through the rainforest and how you get to sit down and spend time, uh, even with language barriers, with guides and trackers and porters and village people and the veterinarians and researchers. And, and I started to notice that there were lots of similarities. You know, they poorly paid, terrible conditions, malaria all over the place, long times of separation from their families. And yet they are under the impression that they have the most important, valuable job in the world because they're looking after the great apes in their backyard. And he started realizing these folks can't, they have no way of getting that story out. And, and that's a story that people need to know about. And essentially, my thought was that if I were able to get that story out, then then people would be moved to action and different people respond to images and stories compared to statistics and numbers and hard facts. So for those folks that aren't primatologists that are like my neighbor or my auntarine or whoever, it's something that you can, um, the book is something that you will understand why we are all great apes, how we are similar. Um, so I tell people the book is kind of three equal parts. One part is, I like to think anyways, is an, an emphasis on how if you feel passionate about something, take a chance, be vulnerable, set out to do something that you never dreamt you'd be able to do. So I hope it's a little bit inspirational that every now and then when you think you should move off the sidelines, this is something worth doing. For heaven's sakes, do it. People are so willing to help. People are phenomenal and, and you'll be able to accomplish way more than you ever thought. So that's the first third is kind of the inspiration that anybody can do this. The second is, I do truly hope that people learn something about our closest relatives, who they are, why they look like us, and what the risks, or not the risks, but the threats are, and, and understand that we're complicit in most of the problems that are there, but, but honestly, for decent reasons. I mean, if you lived in the time of the Congo Wars and you were chased out of your home by armed rebels and needed to live in the forest, you'd need to eat something. You'd need to burn wood to keep warm. So there are reasons for all these happening. The farmers in Indonesia, um, they don't burn down the forest just for the sake of doing it. It's, it's an economic thing and, and poor government direction and so on. So... Part of it is to understand who the great apes are, the threats against them. The third part, and I hope equal part, is sort of the optimistic part to say things are being done. There are amazing NGOs on the ground that have created entire landscape plans that sitting down with communities, they say, all right, you know, you tell me you need this for agriculture, you tell me you need this for forests and they come up with an action plan. And these places like the Wildlife Conservation Society, African Wildlife Foundation, WWF, it's phenomenal what they do. And so, uh, and then there are sanctuaries and I wanted people to understand. I, I didn't even know that sanctuaries do what they do. And, and they're completely important in terms of regulations. You, you can't confiscate an animal being kept in a horrible situation if you have nowhere to bring that animal. These sanctuaries are wonderful for education in the population. And, um, and so my hope is that people have a way to understand that it's not all negative. It's, it's not all coming to an end. We can and need to now. It's The timing is important, but we need to make sure that we support the Gene Goodall Institute, African Wildlife Foundation, WCS, whatever the, the charity, they need to support those because they are doing amazing things on the ground. So that's kind of the three things that I hope the book um, in the long term handles. And, and I guess the shameless plug is that if we, uh, that every single cent that the book brings in will be donated to the conservate, uh, wildlife conservate education project. And that's what's funding 
the veterinarians so that they can work in the sanctuaries and national parks. So it's uh, it is absolutely not a self-interest thing that whole, all the proceeds are going to that particular project. And we've already sponsored uh, two, as I mentioned. Well, there, no, there's nothing shameless about that at all. I, I'm that that's why I'm so excited to to help promote it as well. And so where where can people get a copy of the book if they're interested? Well, they can see it on our website. So it's www.docs4, the numeral four, greatapes.org. That's our website. Um, and there's a link, a direct link, but it's available, Barnes & Noble, uh, Amazon in the US, in Canada, Indigo Chapters, uh, uh, and uh, many bookstores carry it now. It, it was released on the 6th of April and soon to be in Europe and uh, in Australia. Oh, that's fantastic. But I will mention, as somebody who has published books before, that if they do buy it directly from you, more of the proceeds will go to helping the, the program. Yeah, so I would really encourage right. people, if they're interested, to, um, to get it directly from you and help support the cause. Rick, this has been fantastic. Thank you for sharing the story and good luck. I hope I'd really like to stay in touch, uh, both personally, but also as an organization. Um, you know, Globio, our, our parent, our mothership, I guess, uh, for sure. talking apes. These are things that are very close to our hearts. They're very much involved in our programs as well. And I'd like to um, keep us in touch with you and see how we can help. So, Well, and thank you for the opportunity. Thanks. I've enjoyed this. And, and thank you for the work you do uh, as well. It's, it's critically important that we all help. I want to thank Rick Quinn for joining us and illustrating the power of the individual to make a difference in the lives and the survival of great apes. You've been listening to Talking Apes, where each episode we explore the world of apes with experts from research to outreach, with passionate primate people, and conservationists from around the world. Our guests are at the very forefront of what's happening to our wild primate cousins. You can find previous episodes of Talking Apes on our website at www.globio.org backslash Talking Apes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions for us here at Talking Apes, or ideas about future podcasts, you can always email us at media at globio.org. I'd like to thank Talking Apes producer Meg Stark for all of her work in putting together another great Talking Apes podcast. And finally, I'd like to thank you. Talking Apes podcasts are made possible by listeners like you. So please consider supporting Talking Apes with your tax-deductible donation at globio.org. I'm Jerry Ellis. Thanks for listening to Talking Apes.